It's hard not to love fall in Alabama. I mean, hasn't been beautiful this fall? Really. Uh, everywhere you look, have you noticed the sunrises and sunsets? Anybody noticing that? It's just hard not to love fall in Alabama. Everywhere you, you, as you're driving, you look, the misty mornings, the explosive color of the fall leaves. Everywhere you look, the trees, the Alexander Shinar billboards. <laughs> everywhere. And the best part of fall, for many of you, uh, is, uh, is the fire pit. How many of you are like fire pit people? You got the fire? Yeah, yeah, you love the, what is it about the warm, uh, 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 crackling fire? Uh, get everybody around, you gather around the fire pit, or maybe you go camping, you have that campfire. Well, I mean, the fire, right? It's, it's warming, it's good, it's wholesome. It gives you all the fall feels and being around the fire. So we would all agree, yeah, fire, totally good. On the one hand, totally good, totally warm. On the other hand, fire's one of those things, right? You don't play with fire. We have an expression with kids, hey, don't play with fire. And even with grown-ups, I'd be careful with that one. Why? That's playing with fire. We mean, hey, here's something that's valuable, and here's something that all of us are grateful for. You can't get very far in life without fire. And yet, for anyone who's ever been the devastation of a house fire, or maybe you yourself, or you know someone who's been a burned victim, I mean, we have brave men and women, and every community has, called firefighters, like devoted to. Their job is to help a community prevent, because everybody knows fire on the one hand, really, really good, really helpful. On the other hand, can be really, like fatally out of control and deadly. So what do you do? I mean, surely there comes a point where it's like, that's it. You know, there are some things in life where it's like, this is just too hot to handle. Fine, never again. Like, make it illegal. I mean, I'm sure there's been times where it's like, make all fires illegal. But we can't do that, right? You can't get, yes, no one can disagree. It's like devastating if it gets out of control. But it'd be more devastating. Can you imagine life without fire? If you say, well, that's all right, I don't need fire. I have electricity. I'm not sure you fully understand how a power grid works, Like, back it all down. It starts with fire. It's like the, the little girl who's like, that's all right. If there's no farms, I'll just get my food from Publix. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not sure you fully get, right? We wouldn't get far. And, and, and when you boil it all down, no matter what, you're, you're taking the resource of this earth and harnessing the energy. So you can't live without fire, and yet you got to be really careful with it. Everybody would agree the good. Everybody would agree it's dangerous. Today's playing with fire. Today's text is playing with fire. I'm convinced that the theological te- the concept that's in today's text, and if you'll meet me in 2 Samuel 22, I'm telling you, for a preacher, this is playing with fire. This is incendiary stuff. And the, and the, and the thing that you, 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 can't, you can't not talk about it. You've got to talk about it. And yet, if it gets out of control, the potential for misunderstanding is really great and would do great damage. And yet, it'd be an even more damaging thing not to talk about it. And this incendiary topic... The unconditional love of God. The topic today is the grace of God. God's unmerited favor. Now, you may be thinking, that doesn't sound very incendiary. That doesn't sound very scandalous. I'm telling you, the grace of God is the most incendiary thing there is. It's something that you cannot live without it. You need it. And yet, the potential for misunderstanding is huge. Anytime you talk about the unconditional love of God, the grace of God, don't believe me? Even when Paul, the Apostle Paul, talked about the grace of God, he talked about grace so much, he had to put a warning sticker on it, and it's Romans 6. 
If you know your Bibles, you know what I'm talking about. He talks about, yeah, the grace of God, the unconditional love of God. He saved us while we're still sinners. His grace is greater than your sin, Romans 6, 1. Well, does that mean that we should just keep on sinning so that grace could abound? Absolutely not. And I won't quote the rest of Romans, but I can't. But you know, right? You get what I'm saying? It comes with a warning sticker, God's grace. And yet, the most devastating thing in the world would be uh, for you not, as a Christian, for you to leave here and not know that his grace rests upon you. So with all the dangers in preaching about the grace of God, meet me in, in 2 Samuel, and I, m- maybe you'll see why this is so scandalous. If you, uh, if you look at 2 Samuel in your Bibles, we're gonna start in verse 17, but I'll give you a little background. This is David's song of deliverance. David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so they put this uh, praise song at the end uh, this is uh, not for nothing, but f- f- for your homework. Um, if you're wondering today, like, what am I going to do with this extra hour? <laughs> Here would be, you're like, I already spent it in sleep. Okay. Here would be a very fruitful use of your extra hour. Sometime today, curl up with the Bible and uh, uh, get a fire pit. It's 81 degrees. But like, get, <laughs> um, Get with 2 Samuel. Here we're coming near the end. There's only two, two messages left in this whole series. So, so, so we're coming to the end of the life of David. And notice how much 2 Samuel 22. Remember, 1 and 2 Samuel were not originally 1 and 2 Samuel. They were just Samuel. Go all the way back to the beginning. How much 2 Samuel 22 reminds you of Hannah's psalm, Hannah's prayer. You haven't forgotten about Hannah, have you? That weeping woman there at the temple. She's, she's praying at the synagogue. She's praying and uh, uh, praying for that child. She's barren and she has Samuel. Go back and look. My, my Lord, my rock, my redeemer. And it would be a very fruitful exercise for you to compare and ask yourself at the end of that, what does it say? Why? Ask yourself why. Think about all that 2 Samuel has taken us through in the history of Israel. Think about the ark and the temple of Dagon and the Philistines and David and Goliath and Saul and, all, and David and Bathsheba and all that. And yet all the ups and downs of life are bracketed with praise. And this is David and Hannah's How Great Thou Art. The whole book is surrounded by praise to who God is. And it's not just any God. This Psalm, David writes, says, my Lord, my rock. Go back and count how many times the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rock, my God in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior in whom I place my trust. You see, this is personal to David. Now, fun fact, this is actually repeated twice in the Bible. Uh, You can look at 2 Samuel 22. This is Psalm 18. It got republished as Psalm 18, one of the Psalms of David, with very few changes. David took it to his publisher. They got the rights on CCLI. And once they got it ready to publish, <laughs> so not really, they got it on Spotify, I think, in Psalm 18. Uh, you'll see the exact same thing. So you could, I guess, follow along in Psalm 18, but your verse numbers would be slightly different. So I turn your attention to Psalm, to 2 Samuel 22. Here we go. Playing with fire. After all this, he's been on the run. He's, he's thinking about all those times God delivered him. And he says in verse 17, he sent from on high. Talks about how God delivered. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Only one other place in the Old Testament, you see that expression. Drawn out of many waters. Only one other place. It was when the daughter of Pharaoh back in Exodus saw little baby Moses floating in the world's smallest ark. 
And that little ark, that little basket of reeds was floating down the Nile, and she drew Moses out. And she named him Moses, because Moses sounds like the Hebrew for drew out of the waters. And what David is saying is, go back in my salvation history. He's looking at what God has done. Think about this. He's looking at what God has done in salvation history and saying, what God has done in salvation history, that's what he's done for me. So in his mind, he goes back to the Exodus. When the people were in bondage in Egypt and God brought them out to a good and broad place, he drew out baby Moses from the water and he drew me out of the hand of Saul and the hand of all my enemies. And that's what Christians do. They say, just like we sang, you're the same God. Look at what you've done. We talk about all the ways you've saved. You've done that in my life. That's what David's doing. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. That's it, David. Yes, exactly. Goliath was too mighty for you. That's the whole point of that story. For anybody who reads that story and is like, well, that just shows the cleverness of David, or that just shows how well he had practiced, or you know, that shows that the, 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 the ammunition from a sling is better than a mighty you know, sword, so Air Force beats Army. Or, like, no, that's not the point, right? The point is what? They were too mighty for me. The Lord saved me that day. That's the point of David and Goliath, is that God did a miracle. Well, they, con- they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. There's that Exodus language again. At the burning bush where Moses was there, God says, I'm gonna deliver my people. I'm gonna pull them out of bondage and put them in a land flowing with milk and honey into a good and broad place. Same phrase is used of the Exodus. Put them in a broad place. David is confined in a cave and he's gonna have the freedom of a broad place. And here it is. This to me is incendiary. He brought me out into a broad place He rescued me because he delighted in me. Hmm? Yes, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Wait, what? Think about it. The the writer of 2 Samuel, he, he put this here for a reason. This is 2 Samuel 22. Think about all you know about David. And David has the audacity to write, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Uh, this is like, what are we, four or five chapters removed from uh, David and, and uh, maybe 10 chapters removed from David and Bathsheba. Uh, David and uh, murdering Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. Like, wait, wait, David, you have no right to say something like, he rescued me because he delighted in me. I mean, does that, that's not right, right? See, here's where if you're new to church, you may not understand why this is incendiary at all. You may be like, what's Tom talking about? What's the big deal? God delighted in, God delighted in me. What, you know, if you're new to church, you might think, well, yeah, of course God delights in me. I'm delightful. I'm a delightful person. I'm worthy of his delight. But for those of you who, those of you who laughed, you've probably grown up in church. Is this how we're used to talking about ourselves? Well, the preacher said, how do you stand before a holy God? How many of you would be like, he, he delights in me, right? That's all we're trained to say. What are we trained to say? My righteousness before God is as what? My righteousness before God is as, fil- some of you said it, filthy rags, right? We, we, we know the Psalms. I am, remember mortals, we're just dust, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He is holy and we are wretched sinners. And here David's like, he rescued me because he delighted in me. I'm not supposed to talk like that. And now you see where I'm at. Now you see what I'm saying. So a preacher is supposed to stand up in front of God's people and say, if you are a child of God, the delight of almighty God rests upon you. Well, like, 
Doesn't that, shouldn't that come with like a warning sticker? Like, nope, there it is, the unbridled delight of God. Do you know God's posture toward you today, Christian? Unmitigated delight. Pastor Tom, this is a Bible preaching church. This pulpit's not afraid to declare the truth. Are you gonna get up there and tell people that God delights in them? No. The Bible is going to tell people God delights in them. It's right there. Now you see why this might want to come with a warning sticker. You, you tell people God delights in them. And I'm telling you, we need to be reminded of this. We need to hear this. If you're not careful, there are Christians who <clears throat> our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's true before a holy God. That's absolutely true. We're sinners. Jonathan Edwards, Puritan sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's all from the Bible. It's true. Our, our worthiness could never, our, our, our righteousness could never measure up. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we're not careful, and if that's the only message that we're, 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 we're used to hearing, and we never even glance at 2 Samuel 22, I wonder if uh, it's possible for a Christian to, to, to go very long in their life, and they start to think something like this, which this verse is meant to blow this thinking out of the water. But there are Christians who walk around, I honestly think, they think this. Well, God doesn't really, he doesn't really, he loves me, I get that. But when it comes to how he views his relationship with me, it's really through Jesus. Like, like, like Jesus died on the cross for me and because of Jesus' covenant faithfulness, right, he was obedient, here's the deal. God is never gonna go back on his word. And so God has made this covenant promise to love us and be faithful to us. And so God is gonna be faithful to us because of Jesus and because the blood of Jesus covers us. And so because of the atonement, God has to like save us and take us to heaven because he can't go back on his word. And so he's gonna honor that covenant he made, but he's not happy about it. Really? I wonder if there are Christians who think that. That God is sort of backed into this corner theologically and he's like, look, you know, I, I, if they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you know, I, I, I said I'd save them, I'm gonna save them, so I'll grind it out, you know, through all eternity with these people. <laughs> but I don't really have any joy in it. That's not what this verse says at all. He rescued me because he delighted in me. You are under the delight of Almighty God. Is that how you think about God's posture towards you this morning? Has that crossed your mind? To say that that he's not just saving David, but he has a a delight on David. Now, is there room for misunderstanding this? Of course, of course there is. Here's a couple or three. One possible misunderstanding is uh, people would say, now Tom, uh, uh, you gotta be careful now because if you preach to people you are under the delight of God, that might make them prideful. Fair objection, right? You, you might get the big head. If, if people hear that like you're under the delight of God, you, you might get prideful. Um, okay, but I would push back on that. Is that really how that works? Is that true? Uh, does that kind of encouragement always lead to pride? I'd like to use a simple and small illustration to illustrate broadly and a great theological truth. I hope it works. It's just a small and simple and silly illustration, but I hope it illustrates broadly. Say you are going to a party, a Sunday school party, or it could be a you know, holiday party coming up, and you, I mean, really 
dress up nice. And you get like your best clothes and you, 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 know, you get your, your hair all, uh, just a fresh haircut and a fresh do and all that. And you get completely um, gussied up, whatever that means. <laughs> so you have achieved gussy level maximum, right? a hundred gussy. And, uh, and so you, 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 you really get, get dressed up, you look good, okay. And you go to the party and uh, someone uh, notices and so someone says to you, hey, I really like that outfit. Or they compliment you. You look really nice tonight. Is it true? Is it the case that when you're given that delight and someone delights in you, is it true that immediately your head swells up? I mean, I suppose there's like a very small fraction of the population that would be like, hey, you look really nice. Oh, really? Tell me more. Let's celebrate this good news together. Would you write down a few thoughts? Like, like, okay, maybe, right? There's a few creepy people that they would get the big head. Yes, that's why I dressed up like this. It's sheer vanity. <laughs> like, okay, fine. But is that how you react? Like, put yourself in that situation right now. You've just, been re- you've just received that compliment. Is that what you do? Is that what you do? Oh, yes, that, that just gives me the big head. No, I know what you do. You do what we all do. You, look, you sort of shuffle your feet. You look down. No, no. <laughs> The lighting must not be very good in here because <laughs> I'm actually hideous, right? You completely deflect. Do you not? Oh, maybe I'm the only one. You deflect, right? I don't know. I, I, I'm not convinced that does, right? And of course, there's always like the, the few total weirdo Christians who quote scripture. You look really good. Really? Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a woman who lacks virtue. So, it's like, okay. And now you'll never get any compliments again. So, Somewhere in there is a small illustration to illustrate. I'm not convinced that when you tell people God's delight rests on you, I don't know that the great fear is that they'll get the prideful big head. Uh, My great fear is that they'll never hear, Christian, God delights in you. A more serious misunderstanding would be if someone were to say, well, uh, Okay, I, God, I, I hear what you're saying. God rescued me because he delights in me. But some people might say, well, that's easy for David to say. And I, I just, I can't earn his delight. A more serious misunderstanding is if people would think that God delights in them because somehow people have earned God's delight. Now that is a serious misunderstanding. To somehow think, well, I, I've been so good. I've, I've impressed God. Or, you know, uh, I get it. That's for David. You know, David was a king. David was, you know, he, he had it all together. And so God delights in the smart people. God delights in these wealthy people. God delights in these good-looking people. God delights in, in these people who have the, these perfect families and they got all together. But, you know, what hope do I have? So I could see how God delights in David, but not in me. Oh, that would be a dreadful misunderstanding. <sighs> Not only does the entire canon of scripture run counter to that line of thinking, but even this very verse and this very story, think about this is King David who said that. But look at the order here. Look at the logic of the word because. Notice this. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Do you see the logic here? Let me ask it this way. When did the delight of God rest upon David? Was it after he was good and safe and put in a good broad place and rescued? Or was it not before, before he was brought into a good 
and broad place. My point is God's delight rested on David while he was still in the cave, while he was still in trouble. His delight rested on David, and that is why he rescued. It does not say after the rescue, after the chaos, after the sin, after the fear, after, after I, got, I put all that behind me, after I cleaned myself up, and after I no longer struggle with my anxiety, and after I no longer struggle with my lust, and after I no longer struggle with my sin, and if I promise to really, really do good, and if I can sort of rescue myself, then maybe just maybe his delight will rest upon me. It's just the opposite. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Do you know this is fundamental to the gospel? This is the greatest thing gospel preachers get to say. The simplest, one of the simplest ways I know to explain the gospel to somebody is this. You don't have to clean your life up to go to God. You just go to God and he'll clean your life up. Say, where do I get that? Romans 5, 8 where? And that is the distinguishing mark of Christianity and all other world religions. All other world religions are some form of, if you pray the right prayers and if you do the right things and if you will follow and if you will make sure other people follow and if you will do that, then and only then, then you will be worthy to have the love and blessing of your deity. Christianity is completely different. In Romans 5, 8 it says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. While, we were, while David was in the cave, while he was in trouble, he can say, he rescued me because he delighted in me. His love, his delight is for those who are not yet fixed and healed and got it all together of their brokenness. The uncaused love of God resting upon a sinner. The message translation of that verse is something like, here I stand surprised by the love of God. That's pretty good. Blown away, surprised that God would lay his delight upon me. And the point is, he'd done nothing to earn it. So yeah, there's this misunderstanding with grace. That's why, that's why I'm back to my fire illustration. It can get really out of control and people can really misunderstand this. But the worst thing of all would be to people to live without this. I'll give you one more misunderstanding, potentially. And that's for people to read a verse like this. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And they would say, okay, okay. So God delights in me. Yeah, so see? I got some things in my life, and there's sin. At least, preacher, you call them sin. You're telling me the Bible calls them sin. But if God delights in me, this would be the misunderstanding. If God delights in me, then that means he must be cool with my sin. He must approve of it. You just said he delights in me. So how are you going to talk about judgment and wrath if you're going to talk about the love of God? How, how are you going to talk about, how are you going to, you know, it, if, if God delights in me, then he's cool with my sin. Okay. To anyone who would think that way, I would say uh, that tells me you do not understand the delight of God or you do not understand the nature of sin or possibly both. Let me explain. If you think of sin as that really fun thing that grumpy old God won't let you do, then I can understand your objection. If that's your understanding of sin, that it's this really cool and fun and thing that would give you all this uh, self-expression and self-fulfillment and, and just, you know, mean old God, he won't let you have that thing. If that's your understanding of sin, then you don't understand the love of God and you don't understand sin. 
Because if you understand how the Bible talks about sin, it's not this fun thing that God is keeping you from. The Bible talks about sin as a power. Uh, Think of it as a cancer. What's so insidious about cancer is that it gets inside you and it begins eating you up and destroying you from the inside out. That's how sin is. Sin eats up our souls from the inside out. And a loving God is not okay. Those of you who have had loved, you've battled cancer or you have a loved one who battled cancer, everybody in here gets it. The more you love that person, the more you hate that cancer. You're not okay with it. You hate cancer. Why? Because of your love. You love that person so much, you hate that cancer. And for some of you, uh, your doctrine of God, this can be a, a helpful shift for you this morning. Sin is not that good thing that God's trying to keep from you. Sin is a wicked cancer, and a good God has put sin under the crosshairs of its wrath because of the depth of his love for you. That's why David said he he rescued me because he delighted in me. It doesn't mean he's cool with my sin. The more he loves a person, the more he's going to be against sin. This illustration I've, I've used before, I hope it's helpful in understanding. Sometimes people say, I just don't understand how you get a God of love and a God of wrath. I don't know how you reconcile that. And to me, that, 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 it's obvious how you reconcile that. The more you love something, the more your wrath comes down on that which would hurt it. You know, uh, it's been several years ago, uh, one, uh, for Christmas one year, my nephew was nine years old. And my nephew wanted uh, for Christmas only one thing. You ever, you ever have that kid that's like, they get to that stage where it's like, this is all I ever want, ever. I will ever want. And his heart was set on a Lego, Lego set. I thought Legos were uh, uh, small toys and fairly inexpensive. I was wrong on both counts. Uh, this one was massively large. It had over 40,000 pieces, and it was kind of expensive. You know the gifts where you're like, okay, this is going to be your Christmas and birthday through 2025. Like, you know, you mortgage your future. Uh, but, but why? Because what he wanted as a nine-year-old was the Death Star. You just revealed a lot about yourself based on whether you laughed or you're like, never heard of it. Okay, all right. So if you're not familiar with the sci-fi movie called Star Wars, um, it's this thing that humans know. Anyway, um, (laughs) so all he wanted was a Death Star. It had like 40,000 bricks, 40,000 pieces of this thing, right? It's massive. Well, we all go in together and sure enough, and he gets it, right? And so he is uh, spending like, like all the family is celebrating Christmas and he's in his room piecing together this masterpiece and he can't get enough, right? And he's like up there and he's working it all together. It's got moving parts, it's got this stuff. And you know, we're like, hey buddy, you wanna like come downstairs and eat? And he's like, no, <laughs> right? Like a mad scientist in his lab. He's just delighting in this thing, right? And, you know, another day goes by. You sure you don't wanna like, you know, see another human or anything? No, right? Just delighting in this. He gets it all ready and it's all, it's amazing, and so he comes downstairs, and of all the things he could have said, and he could have said, like, hey, it's ready, and I want you guys to see it. Or he could have said, like, you know, ta-da. But in the way only a nine-year-old boy can, he came down and said, oh, I assure you, this Death Star is fully operational. <laughs> yes. yes, he did. So we go upstairs, and, and when he unveils this thing, I mean, it t- he is beaming. He's just smiling from ear to ear and just delighting. And it's hard not to watch him as he's delighting in his creation. 
it's hard not to delight in his delight. We get caught up in his delight. And some of your parents are smiling because you know that feeling where you're delighting and the kid has built this thing and they're delighting and you're delighting in their delight and it's just a big, oh, there's all this delight, right? And people get that. They understand God of love and delight. Okay, now let me ask you, what if I had chosen to be that uncle? Every family has one. And I go over and I say, uh, hey, little buddy, uh, that's pretty cool what you did. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna tinker a little bit and I take one brick. Guys, there's 40,000 bricks. What's the problem? I take one little Lego and I just, just kind of break it off and point it in the wrong direction. I mean, the Death Star is a perfect sphere, but they got this one, it's kind of pointing off here. It's kind of pointing off to pointing at Alderaan too soon. So it's kind of like uh, out of place and everything else is fine. Guys, there's 40,000 pieces. What's wrong with one little piece? Uh, everybody in here, you've never met my nephew and you know his reaction, don't you? Would he be, would he be cool with that? No, there's only one word to describe what would happen. Wrath. There's nothing that would get him to focus on all the things that are going right. Hey, look, all this is going good. It would be unmitigated wrath. And in the crosshairs of his wrath, with laser-like surgical precision, he is not gonna be okay with one piece, even though it's 40,000. His focus is that one piece that's out of place. Why? Because he's not okay with one thing out of place in the object of his delight. The reason God puts sin in your life under the crosshairs of his wrath is because Sin doesn't belong in the life of a child of God. And he loves you so much, he won't let that remain because in you, he delights. So people who say, well, I don't understand a, how a God of love could be a God of wrath, I'd say, well, you, do, you, do you understand love? You don't need a theology textbook. The more you love something, the more you would, you, you, of course you would want sin removed. Proverbs actually says this. In Proverbs 3, it talks about this. The, the, the reason a father, there it is. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. So don't be surprised if you come under conviction for sin. It's not because God's against you, it's because he loves you. So I've tried to clear up some misunderstandings and I wanna draw this whole matter to a close, but I'm convinced the biggest misunderstanding of all would be for Christians never to hear this preached. I, I know it gets preached, but I'm not sure people receive it, that God delights in you. He loves you. He loves you. God loves you. The uncaused love of God rests upon you, Christian, this morning. You need to hear that. You need to know that. And I, I get it. There's so much danger of being misunderstood. As pastors, we try to put all these warning stickers on it, and we should. But God's not ashamed. He put it right there in his Bible. You, you know, you know the, uh, they don't do it as much anymore. But at, at least when I was in high school, you, you remember this? I haven't seen them too much anymore. But this was a great phase that our whole country went through where uh, uh, they did uh, – uh, bumper stickers that said, my kid was an honor roll student at such and such elementary, and they'd slap. Does anybody remember that? I don't see him much anymore, but does anybody know? Any, you see what I'm talking about? My kid was an all-A honor roll at such and such elementary school. So, so, so they, were, they were so popular that there began to be this sort of niche, sort of subculture, snarky, retaliatory bumper stickers, like in, almost in response. You know what I'm talking about? So you'd see these bumper stickers that were like, well, my kid beat up your honor roll student, <laughs> you know, right? 
You've seen these? My favorite was, my kid was inmate of the month at county jail, (laughs) right? Here's what they got wrong. Those people who would be, and I'm not sure what's going on in their head that thinks, I've got to tear down these honor roll parents. (laughs) But, and if that's you, we'll talk. But like, uh, but, but but, but to put that on there, here's where they missed the point. They thought that parents put that bumper sticker on there to rub it in the faces of all other parents. There may be one out of a thousand that was doing that. And it's the same person who at the party is like, tell me more. Okay, that, that sociopath, let's leave them aside. They thought that parent was rubbing it in. My kid was student of the month. My kid was all a honor roll. And they thought, well, okay, well, my kid beat up your honor roll student because I don't like it that you're rubbing this into other parents. Well, they totally missed the point. The parent didn't put the bumper sticker on there for other parents. They put it on there for the kid. You put it on there to say, hey, you did a good thing. And I'm proud of you. And I'm not ashamed of you. And I'm going to ruin the resale value of our minivan to tell the world. God is not ashamed to say, I delight in you, Christian. You're ashamed sometimes to take him at his word. But he's not. He slapped it on heaven's minivan right there in Psalm 18. He put it in twice. 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. Why? The same reason so your kid looks at the minivan bumper sticker and go, huh, maybe just maybe. They really do delight in me. And God's saying, take me at my word. And that's the thing. That's the thing. David just had the audacity to take God at his word. You think that's scandalous. When Nathan the prophet told David, God has put away your sin, David believed it. And it was credited to him as righteousness, to borrow a phrase we use about Abraham. Look what he says next. He brought me into a broad place. (sighs) Certain... I forgot my glass. Because he delighted in me. There it is. Here we go. You think that's scandalous? The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Uh Uh-oh. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Uh, Uh-oh. What? The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. So maybe you've grown up your whole life understanding salvation is justification by faith alone and not by works. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so something's going on here or else this is absurdly (laughs) self-righteous. It goes on. It cannot mean, right? I mean, if he's saying he is morally morally righteous, right? He dealt with me according to my righteousness and I got saved because of the cleanness of my hands, that's crazy. He just had adultery with Bathsheba and then had Bathsheba's husband murdered. He himself wrote, there's no one who does good, not even one. He wrote in Psalm 143, no one living is righteous before you. Well, he goes on. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes, excuse me, from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. What is he talking about? You know, it's funny. You, you, you read commentaries and they all squirm when they get to this passage. Even your study Bible will do something. If you have study notes, something to try to explain. What is he, what is he saying? Yep. Blameless before God. No, you weren't. 
So some commentators are like, well, he wrote this after the stuff with Saul. Y'all remember the, the Saul stuff? Uh, we're running from Saul. Saul's trying to kill us. Let's hide in this cave. Saul comes into the cave. Dude, he's alone and unguarded and having a you know, private moment. And uh, David, go. David's like, I got the knife. They're like, yes. Sneak. He comes back. How'd you do? I cut off the corner of his robe. Well, you missed, right? You should have killed him, right? And then a few chapters, he's, I'm not gonna touch the Lord's anointed. I was blameless. A few chapters later, they sneak in to the camp where Saul is. Somehow they sneak in and it's two guys. It's David and one other guy. And they get there and a spear is lying right next to Saul. And that spear is just the right size and weight for king killing. And you know who tells him? By the way, this is totally an aside, but if you've been in this series, you need to be rewarded with stuff like this because it's been a long series and you need to be rewarded because you will know and you will laugh and you'll think and you'll know why. Do you know the guy who stood next to him when he was about to kill Saul and he wouldn't do it? Do you know the, do you know the name of the person who was like, kill him, you want me to do it? I will take the spear and I will kill him. I won't even need a second try. I can do it with one try. You know who it was? It was Abishai. He's the guy who wanted to cut off Shimei's head the first time. He wanted to kill him the second time. Abishai just wants to kill somebody. In all of 1st and 2nd Samuel, that's all he wants. You got a friend like that? Okay. So, so anyway, what does David say to Abishai? I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And so some people are like, well, obviously he meant I'm blameless. And well, even then, he's not sinless. And the writer of 2 Samuel is not an idiot. He put, he, put the, he put the thing right here in the order so that we all know David and Bathsheba. So what is going on? Verse 25 solves the riddle. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness, here it is, in his sight. Y'all, I do not know, well, I do know, uh, the Holy Spirit inspired David to write this, that's how. But David's, somehow got it right. He's saying, all I know, in terms of the revealed word of God, think about it, he hadn't seen Messiah Jesus yet, he hadn't seen the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection, and yet so much of the Psalms, you read that and you go, well, for him not seeing it, man, he he was on it. He got it right. He knew that if Nathan the prophet told him, God has put away your sin. David's a smart guy. He's grown up in the sacrificial system. The only way my sin could be put away is if there was some sacrifice and if God did not hold his sins against me. So David's like, I have no idea how you're gonna do that, but I'm gonna believe. I'm gonna believe that you are gonna put my sin away. And if my sin has been put away, then in your sight, then it's put away. If, my sin, if, if, my, if you remember my sin no more, then you remember it no more. Then I can stand before you and say, I've kept the ways of the Lord. I've not wickedly departed from my God, all his rules and so forth. I was blameless before him. You look back and you go, what's he talking about? What he's talking about is a theological term called the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, let me explain this complicated thing in a, I hope, a simple way, and we'll be done. What David here is referring to is when he says, I have... I've kept the ways of the Lord. I'm blameless in your sight. It means this. Something happened at the cross. For every believer, think about it. The wrath for sin that we deserve, it was supposed to fall on us. That fell across the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus. And Jesus' perfect record of righteous obedience was credited to our account. 
Everybody needs to know that. That's what it means to be a Christian. You, by faith, receive Jesus as your Savior. What you're saying is, I acknowledge, I believe, God laid every sin of mine on Jesus, so he takes my sin, and Jesus had a right standing with God the Father. Jesus has every right to say, I was blameless, I kept all the laws of the Lord. And that right standing with God is credited to us, our account. The the word for that is, it's imputed to us, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Here's a very simple and very flawed illustration. No illustration is perfect, but I hope it helps. Imagine a very prestigious university. You wanna get into a really great university, and the university requires only one thing, a perfect transcript. Because they're so prestigious, they don't, they, don't, they don't have any time for B's and C's and D's. They want all A's, perfect, hundreds across the board. So your high school transcript is the record of all your grades, and you realize it doesn't have, this is where it's flawed, some of you do have hundreds. Good for you, so just adjust the illustration. But uh, 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 yeah, let's say you do not have a perfect transcript. Imagine there's someone who does have a perfect transcript, And that gives them the right to go into this prestigious university or this school of study or whatever. And imagine if it were somehow possible. Imagine if it were somehow possible for that sticker with their name on it (laughs) to be lifted off their transcript and placed on yours. And your sticker would be pulled off and placed on theirs. Now they have to be denied admission, but you you have their perfect transcript. That's a flawed illustration for lots of reasons, but I hope you can see. Imagine, you may say, well, I actually had a good transcript. I can get into any school. Good for you. Who has a good enough transcript to get into heaven? No one except one. No one has a flawless enough transcript to get into heaven except one. There is one who could say, I've kept the ways of the Lord. Here's what his transcript says. I've kept the ways of the Lord. I've not wickedly departed from my God. Let me ask you, could Jesus of Nazareth have said, I kept the ways of the Lord? You bet he could. I've not wickedly departed from my God. Check. All his rules were before me and from his statutes I didn't turn aside. Could Jesus say that? He sure could. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. Is this not the testimony of Jesus Christ? That's the perfect testimony of Jesus Christ. What's crazy is that David is the one saying it. What... It's not just crazy, it's scandalous. It's incendiary. It's grace. David realizes at at, at infinite cost, Jesus had his name ripped off his transcript of righteousness and credited to David. And all David's sins were laid upon the Lamb of God. And what's true for David is true for you, child of God. You stand, ponder this, with a perfect record of righteousness because it's not your righteousness. It's his credited to your account. That's grace. That's grace. And David took Nathan, the prophet, at his word. And I want you to take God's word of grace to you at his word. Brandon's gonna come and lead us in a time of response. I want you to Walk out of here thinking about that verse. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David Wilkerson says, this is the source of all rescue. Whether you're in the cave of despair or pit of lust or whatever attack you're facing, the secret is knowing God delights in me.
I know, I know, I know you could run the risk of someone misunderstanding this passage. But as a pastor, to me, the greater risk would be Christians who miss out on the truth of these verses. And they miss out on the joy of knowing they have the delight of God in Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon commented on this verse. He wrote this old book called The Treasury of David. It's seven volumes. And uh, one of the, it's one of the great uh, treasures in my library. It was given to me by Dr. Hayes. Longtime pastor here gave, gave me his Treasury of David. And in that old book, I cracked it open and Spurgeon wrote about this verse. And he says, free grace lies at the foundation. Rest assured, if we go deep enough, sovereign grace is the truth which lies at the bottom of every well of mercy. Such a Spurgeon line, so flowery. See, if we go down deep enough, we always eventually get to the bottom and at the bottom is just his free grace. But why? Why would God delight in me? It's love. But I didn't deserve, it's love. You go deeper, 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 and you just get to the bottom. You go, well, it's, he loves me because he loves me. Here's his line. Why God should delight in us is an answerless question and a mystery which angels cannot solve. I love that. Why God loves us? Angels are up there going, I don't get it either. I don't know. I don't know. But that he does is certain. And it's the fruitful root of favors as numerous as they are precious. I'm going to say that again. Why God should delight in us is an answerless question and a mystery that angels cannot solve. But that he does is certain. Believer, sit down. This would be my advice to you. Sit down and inwardly digest this verse until you learn to view the uncaused love of God as the cause of all the blessings in your life. Believer, sit down and digest that verse. Don't let go until you get it deep. Don't ever get too far from that gospel fire. Let it warm you. Sit down and inwardly digest that verse until you can say that the uncaused love of God is the cause of all the good things in my life. It's his free grace. He loves you. He delights in you. David, on the one hand, had no right to sing the song of praise, but after understanding the righteousness of Christ, I would say David had every right to sing the song of praise, and so do you. Let's pray. God, grant to us that you would do that wonderful thing that you so often do where your word says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Grant that your goodness and your grace, instead of being a fire that destroys and uh, uh, becomes a license for sin and, and fatally hurts people. Instead, let it be for us a fire that warms us and truth that sustains us. Your grace, Lord. Let us leave here knowing your posture toward us is one of delight. You proved it on Calvary's cross. And if there's anybody here who doesn't know you today, let today be that day where transfer their trust to you and receive the imputed righteousness of the sinless one and thank you God for this great song of salvation in Jesus name we pray amen would you stand here